Well, good evening. Glad you're here. I know people are coming in. Just make your way in. This is pretty informal. Glad you're here for our study of the book of Acts. You guys have been really faithful. This is the longest study we've ever done, uh, probably at this church. This is, if you don't realize it, you're almost finished with an 18-week study of Acts. We broke it into part one, two, and three, but that's really great. You guys, hopefully, if you think back on it, we've surveyed a lot of church history in the book of Acts. We have a couple more sessions after this, and then we'll be finished for uh, a while. We take a little break, the whole church does, on Wednesday night, but have some interesting things for this summer and definitely for the fall. So I'll tell you about that in, in a little bit. Uh, let me go ahead and uh, say a prayer, and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for all our families and all the uh, kingdom work that's represented in this place. We do lift up to you our cares, our concerns, and pray that tonight you give us a sense of peace, open our minds and our hearts for your word to pour in, that something that's said or something in the scriptures takes root in our lives, Father, that we might deep, dig deep roots of faith. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, number to text your questions to, and then uh, just following up from last week, we have scheduled an Israel tour, and the link is up, and all the information, everything's out there on the Crossings webpage. So for those of you that have been asking about that, we try to open that up to our church family first. And so if you're interested, that's uh, on the webpage now, crossings.church slash Israel. So we are studying the book of Acts. We uh, have made it to, this is the end of Paul's third missionary journey. We call them missionary journeys. He thought he was just taking off, starting churches and checking on churches. This is about 57 AD, and Paul has made his way back to Jerusalem. So he spent several years on the road. If you remember, he spent almost three years on this trip in the city of Ephesus and really evangelized most of what's today modern Turkey. So he has made his way to Jerusalem, and he's really on an inexorable journey. You'll see this tonight. The Lord's going to give him a, a prophecy and tell him, give him a glimpse of what lies ahead for him. But God has a plan moving toward the rest of Paul's life in his ministry. It's not the same as Paul's plan, but it'll be interesting to see how that weaves together. So this is the third uh, missionary journey. I told you last time that I would show you a picture of Paul from his Facebook page. There are not very many, uh, there are no descriptions of Paul from this time period. Paul doesn't put in any of his letters, hey, here's a photo of me, or there's nothing on the fly leaf back there. Hi, Paul, he's a professor at Hebrew University. You know, there's none of that kind of thing. But late in the second century, so this is a little unreliable, there is a description, an interesting little description from a document. This is not inspired. It is devout. I mean, it's not a bad document, but it's not inspired. It may not be true, but here's a description of Paul from a document called the Acts of Paul, specifically a little piece of it called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. said he was a man who was pretty small, bald-headed, bow-legged. So, just a handsome guy. He's uh, in good health. That's the only part that I really doubt of this. Is you've now read Acts and you realize this guy cannot be in good health. With eyebrows that met, so he's got a unibrow and a big nose. 
full of grace, for sometimes he looked like a man and sometimes he looked like an angel. And you get that idea of just that burning passion. If you've gotten to know Paul in the second half of the book of Acts, you realize he has just a burning faith and a burning passion. That is an icon from the Eastern Orthodox Church, Paul on the left, Peter on the right. And again, that's, that's just an artist's rendition, kind of a traditional viewing. There are all kinds of paintings in the Middle Ages of Paul. You know, I kind of like art, and I'll share some more with you next week, but this is one from the 15th century of what they envisioned the Apostle Paul might have looked like. So we don't really know very much about him except that he probably likely was a small, of small stature. He was not physically in, you know, imposing. You can read that into his letters. He talks about himself as being nothing special or not very impressive at all, and that's one of the reasons I think God chose him, is just that burning passion that he has. Well, in our last lesson, he made his, his way to Jerusalem. And so as we open, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 21 of the book of Acts. We're going to cover about three chapters worth. This period of time, though, this is interesting. Luke is going to spend a lot of time in the next lesson, in a couple of chapters, He's going to whip through in about 12 days what happens in this lesson, and it is just packed. But it gives you an idea of what he thinks is important here. So Acts 21, verse 17 opens up this way. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. This is the brother of Jesus who's the leader of the Jerusalem church, and all the elders of the church were present. Remember, we'd already talked about early early in the church. The church structure was built around elders. You'll also see deacons, just we haven't seen them in this text, but uh, elders and deacons were the earliest church structure. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. You see that theme, don't you? Paul talks about what God has done through him in his ministry, and it's exploded. The gospel has, has been great power in the Gentiles. When they heard this, they praised God. But then they said to Paul, you see, we have a problem. Thousands of Jews have also believed they're in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem has exploded too, and they're all zealous for the law. What he meant by that is they're Christians. They don't think the law saves them anymore. They believe that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but they're all observant Jews, and so they still follow the customs of the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live out there among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What are we going to do? They will certainly hear that you've come, so we have a plan. Do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. I'll tell you what that means in a second. Then everybody will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. This is an interesting dilemma that they have. There's still this tension between Jewish Christians, by that I mean they grew up as Jews following the law, they have now accepted Christ, but they keep their customs. Uh, and then Gentiles who have come to Christ who have kept their customs. 
And by Jewish standards, the Gentiles, by not following the law, are just, they've always thought of them as lesser than. And this is a bit of a problem. So now they hear Paul, who they knew grew up a Jew, and they hear that he's out there teaching that you don't have, the Jews don't have to follow the law of Moses anymore. That's partly true. What he is teaching them is, is that the law cannot save you, never could, never will. He is not, however, actively telling the Jews, you should stop circumcising your children, you should stop following the uh, kosher laws, you should stop following the Ten Commandments. He's not teaching them that, but you can understand how the Jews have heard that about him. So they come up with a pretty clever plan. They said, why don't you take a vow with these four guys? So the vow that they're talking about is a Nazarite vow. You may remember that. It's covered in Numbers chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And a Nazarite vow was basically committing yourself and setting yourself aside in a higher level of devotion to God. You may remember the most famous Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, uh, Samson who was com you know, committed to a lifetime of being a Nazarite. Well, that's not what this is. You could also do what's called a temporary Nazarite vow, and it would be for 30 days, and you would follow those rules. What it would be is you would not cut your hair, you would not go near a dead body, which in those days also meant you wouldn't go to a funeral. And that meant if a family member died, you can't go to the funeral. You just can't be around uh, anywhere near a dead body and that you would not drink wine or even eat grapes, nothing from uh, grapes, nothing from the, the vine, which was, in those days, that was a big deal. The, the water wasn't all that safe. So, I mean, they really mixed their wine and their water, and that was kind of a normal thing to drink, and actually it was more uh, sanitary, for one thing. But basically, it was living a more ascetic lifestyle. It was considered a higher level of devotion. And so they're saying, look, if you do this, People will say, whoa, maybe those rumors aren't true because not only is he a Jew, he's actually taking this temporary Nazarite vow. Also, paying for the other guys, the Nazarite vow was not a cheap thing to do. When you uh, began the vow, this 30-day vow, you had to offer one male and one female lamb, a ram, certain food and drink offerings at the temple, and then you would shave your head, you would keep the hair, and when, you, when the vow expired, when you'd fulfilled your vow, you, that you would burn it as an offering. And so this was part of just the process of really setting yourself apart for a period of time to God. To be, it was viewed as you being much, much more holy. And so just really going to the next level. And they said, Paul, this would be a great thing. And paying for someone the expenses of them to take a vow would be just a huge act of charity. And so it, this is, they're saying, look, why don't you do something really public? You know, walk around with your head shaved. Uh, people will know that you've paid the vows. And so we'll just put all these uh, rumors about you to rest. So that's what's happening here. They've come up with a plan to give a very visible sign. Now, it took seven days of purification before he could even start to do the vows because he had been in Gentile territory. This just gives you an insight into the Jewish mind. The fact that he had been traveling in Greece and Turkey in Gentile areas, when he came back to Jerusalem before he could participate in anything at the temple, he had to go through a seven-day detox 
to get the Gentile smell, you know, off of you. Anybody ever been hit by a skunk? Yeah, it's kind of like that, you know. It's sort of like, okay, you're going to need about seven days to get that Gentile uncleanness off of you. Isn't that an interesting insight into how they thought about it? We, we have a hard time really internalizing how difficult this was, how much prejudice, really literally prejudice, they were having to overcome as Christians. And it was hard. It didn't come easily. It didn't just come overnight. So they come up with this great plan that says, if you do this, that's really going to help. So he had to do seven days of purification, by the way, before he could even start this. The seven days purification, you would go to the temple on the third day, and you'd go to the temple on the seventh day for the priest to kind of, you know, basically sign off on your purification ceremony. In other words, it was a specific ritual thing you would do for seven days. And so Paul agrees. There's an interesting lesson here. I won't hit this too hard, but an interesting lesson as to when do you do things that accommodate the sensibilities of people? Because that's what Paul's doing. Paul does not think, nor do James and the elders think that, hey, if you do this seven days of purification, you'll be more acceptable to God. They don't think that if you do this Nazarite vow, you'll be holier and God will love you more. They don't think that by doing this, you'll be sure you're going to go to heaven. They don't believe that. They believe you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So what they're asking him to do is to accommodate the sensibilities of those people so that we just don't have a problem. Because the elders in the Jewish church are saying, look, Paul, we love what you're doing with the Gentiles, but you have to understand we're reaching thousands of Jews. And so you being here is kind of a problem because they're stirred up about that. And so on the one hand, they embrace Paul and they say, this is awesome to see what God is doing. On the other hand, it's like, but these people are kind of offended, and they're just not there yet, if you want to think about it. So interesting question. When do you do things to accommodate people's sensibilities, and when do you stand up for the truth of the gospel? You'll see that in some of Paul's letters as they kind of wrestle with that tension. I'll stake out the boundaries, the two extremes. On one extreme, Paul said, I have become all things to all people that by God's grace I might win some. Now, he obviously didn't mean he did anything morally wrong or he did whatever people wanted. But what he meant was, when he was with the Jews, he followed the law of Moses. Not because he thought it would save him. He just didn't want any barrier. When he was with Jewish believers who had problem with meat that was sold in the market that had been sacrificed to an idol, he said, there's nothing wrong with that meat, but I'm not going to eat it because I don't want to put any barrier in the way of me telling them the good news. And so he would voluntarily do those things. When he was with the Gentiles, even though as a Jew he was taught not to eat with them, he thought, no, you can't share the gospel with somebody that you won't even share a meal with. And so he did. So he, he really, on the one hand, did a lot of things that didn't have anything to do with salvation. He was just trying to not get anything in the way of him being able to communicate the gospel. Now let's go to the other extreme. Pretty soon, this is 57 AD, in not very long, about 20 years after this, Christians are going to be asked to make sacrifices to the emperor as a god. And at early, all they're going to be asked for early on is to pray to the emperor as a god. Later, they will be asked to sacrifice to the emperor, etc. Christians would not do that. 
They would not confess that Caesar is Lord. It's a very loaded statement for them, meaning he is a God, he is the God. They would not, or even as he is a God, they would not say that, and they died because they wouldn't say that. So I only point this out to you because I think we have the same struggle sometimes, is what do we do out there in our culture to accommodate the sensibilities of our culture so that it doesn't get in the way of the word, but where is the boundary that we will not be untrue to the gospel? And again, I haven't defined that middle point. That's something we really have to think about. But on the one hand, they would not bow down to the idols of the culture. They would not pray to the emperor, and if you killed them, so be it. But Paul would abstain and follow the law of Moses just like the Jews did so that nothing got in the way. That's still something that I think we have to wrestle with a little bit in our culture, is where is the line between standing up for the truth of the gospel and simply accommodating people's prejudices, if you will, so that it doesn't get in the way of the gospel? Well, it was a great plan, but it didn't work. When the seven days were nearly over, this is the seven days of purification so he can shave his head and they can do the vow. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, this is like Ephesus and all those towns in Turkey. That was the Roman province of Asia. We call it Turkey now. So he spent a lot of time there. Some Jews from there, what are they doing in Jerusalem? Remember in our last, you may not remember this, but in our last lesson, he's hustling to get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. If you remember, it said he celebrated the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which goes with Passover in Philippi. And then he starts sailing. He doesn't stop at Ephesus because he's only got 50 days. Doesn't sound like a lot to us, but if you've ever flown over there on some of the U.S. carriers, 50 days, you could have trouble. Well, your luggage could certainly have trouble, you know, getting there in 50 days. But my point is, he's trying to get there before Pentecost. Pentecost is one of those great festivals that Jews from all around the world would come into Jerusalem for it. So there's some Jews in Jerusalem from the province of Asia. And they saw Paul at the temple. He's coming to the temple to see the priest, to finish his purification. And they stirred up the whole crowd, and they grabbed Paul, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and against our law and against this place. These are not Jewish Christians. These are just Jews from there. And they believe that he's teaching another something that's, that violates the law and the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, so he's a, not a Jewish guy, he's a Christian, not a Jewish guy, with Paul. Now, Paul didn't bring him into the temple, but they assumed that he brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused. People came running from all directions, and seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. Okay, so let me tell you the, the background on this. Why in the world are they so revved up about this? I'll show you a picture. This is actually in the Israel Museum. Outside, there's a map of the city of Israel in the time when the temple existed. So this is before 70 A.D. because this temple was totally destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. They have reconstructed huge, huge uh, map out there just a 
replica of the city in that time period. And it's probably as good as anything to look at. This is part of the temple. This is the temple mount at that time. And this is the temple area. In this area, these courtyards out here, huge courtyards. Gentiles could go in there. In fact, that's the area where, remember when Jesus went into the temple and he looked around this area, and it is massive. Herod built a huge uh, he just leveled off the top of the mountain, built these big retaining walls. All these walls are retaining walls to build this up. Built a huge area on the Temple Mount. The temple's in the middle of it. But Gentiles could go into this big open area. And it, this is where Jesus came in, and they had set up the tables for the money sellers and the money changers so that, because when you went into the temple proper, this area in the middle is the temple itself, when you went in there, you couldn't take coins, secular coins. You had to have coins minted for the temple because they couldn't have a picture of any person on them. All the secular coins, even ours, have pictures of people. Well, that's nothing wrong for the Romans, but it is for the Jews. They considered that idolatry. And the money changers were cheating people. They also were selling doves and sacrificial animals, so you would buy them there, take them on into the temple for your sacrifice. And Jesus comes in and said, you've made this a, a den of thieves, a house of commerce. This is supposed to be a place of prayer. He said, look, the Gentiles come in here, and what do they think about our God? They think, well, obviously it's a God who cheats you in money changing, right? And so that's, he's very angry. But in this area, anybody could be in. But you see this little door right there? That goes into the inner area where only Jews could go. And so what they're talking about is they saw Paul inside this area, which he's perfectly allowed to go in, and they said he probably brought some Greeks in here with him, and that is a big no-no. They grab him, they drag him out into the bigger area here, and they shut those doors. There is an interesting uh, sign that's been found. This is Josephus, the first century historian, who's a Jew, and he is describing a sign that is on that wall by that door. So you've got the court of the Gentiles out here, then you see this door, and inside only Jews can go. And Josephus says this, he says, okay, there was the first enclosure where the Gentiles could go, but in the midst of that, and not far from it, was a second courtyard to be gone up by a few steps. It was encompassed by a stone wall for a partition, and it had an inscription which forbade any foreigner to go into it under the pain of death. This is Josephus writing first century. I mean, he's a contemporary uh, of this era. He was uh, involved in the uprising in 66 AD, and he's writing this in the first century. And he's just describing the life of the Jews. So he's describing the temple. And what he's saying is, is that that inner area, that door, he's describing, he said there was a wall around that inner area and there was a sign there. Two of those placards have been excavated those signs were in Greek and they were in Latin so that any Gentiles in there can probably read Greek to some extent or the Romans, you can read Latin. And the signs have been, two of them have been found. And here's one of them. This one happens to be in Greek and here's a translation. No stranger is to enter within this wall and enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will be responsible only to himself for his death, which will most certainly ensue. 
In other words, they would kill you if you were a Gentile and you went inside there. The Romans permitted that. Typically, the Romans didn't permit capital punishment. They, they were the only ones that could do capital punishment. They made an exception for the Jews, frankly, because the Jews were so much trouble. They were so zealous that if you didn't let them do some of the things in their law, they'd go to war. They'd die for it. And the Romans said, okay, okay. Nobody goes inside your little temple area. Even, according to the Emperor Titus, even Roman citizens who went in there and were killed that you're, it's on your own head. And that's why they put those signs up, is to warn people, if you are not a Jew and you go in here, we're going to kill you, and it's your own fault. And so that's what they say is happening here, is they're looking at Paul, and they just jump to the conclusion he's brought Greeks in here, so they grab him, drag him out, and shut that door, and they're going to kill him for defiling the temple by bringing in these Gentiles. So that's what's happening. I tell you, the symbol of this, the symbolism of this is really, uh, really powerful. It's as though you take them, think about this, you take the messenger of God, who's not doing anything wrong, but he comes in there and they have dragged him out and shut the doors of the temple. It's almost as though they've shut God out of the temple. And by the way, this is the last time Paul will see this temple. This is about 57 AD. He's pretty quickly going to make his way. His adventures are going to take him away from Jerusalem tonight. And he's going to leave. That temple is going to be completely destroyed and not rebuilt to this day in 70 AD. So 13 years later, the Romans are going to destroy it. Paul will never see this temple again. But it's almost as though in shutting that door on God's messenger and God's message, they have basically rejected Jesus Christ and God's presence is gone from that temple and the Romans are going to destroy it. I mean, the symbolism of this is really powerful. But that's what's happening there. So basically, a riot starts. They're literally going to kill him. And the only thing that saves his life right now is there are too many people trying to punch him for anybody to get a clean shot. I mean, you've got to imagine that. That is a huge area. People that have been there, you can walk around on that Temple Mount. I mean, there's a lot of Muslims up there now, and the Muslims control it, but you can walk around in that Temple Mount. It's huge. So they drag him out. The only thing that keeps him alive is there's too many of them trying to kill him at one time. And so he's beaten, he's bloody, but he's okay. And all of a sudden, what happens then? While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops. That, uh, the NIV, which is what I typically use here, uh, doesn't translate this very well. He's a tribune. He's the commander of the Roman garrison in the city. And it said, news reached him that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Well, the Roman governor didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea by the sea. Very nice little resort over there. So the guy who's really in charge is this tribune. This tribune is over a cohort of troops, which was the normal garrison for, for uh, Jerusalem, a thousand troops. He had about 750 infantry, about 250 cavalry under his control. He had several centurions that reported to him. So he was basically the peacekeeper, the Roman peacekeeper. He said he at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, it sounds like he took at least 200 soldiers with him. So they're pretty intimidated. When they saw that, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up, okay, this is, this is classic, and arrested Paul. 
and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some shouted another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. This is also very interesting. It's what's happening here. Uh, first of all, let me just tell you, how were these troops and how'd they get there so fast? Let's go back to our uh, picture of the Temple Mount. So this is happening. They drag him out this door, out into this courtyard, and they're trying to kill him. Right here at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount was built a fortress. That is a, it was a massive fortress called the Antonia Fortress. That was the location of where those thousand troops were garrisoned. They were garrisoned right there by the Temple Mount. They had very high, 100-foot high towers right there so they could look down into the temple. If any trouble was going to start in Jerusalem with the Jews, it's probably going to start there. And so they had 1,000 troops headquartered right by the Temple Mount looking down into it. So this makes perfect historical sense. It's very interesting that the book of Acts is so historically accurate is that they could see this happening right away. They would react right away. There's actually a stairway. Let me show you the next uh, slide. I think I got a little bit of a close-up. Yeah, let's a little closer look. There's actually a stairway coming down out of this that leads directly into the Temple Mount. You get the idea that they've had to do this before. The Jews are just really rambunctious, and so they've been in here before doing this. And so that's, that's what they're doing. The... Uh, Tribune comes down, and this is just so interesting. I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised in a military family, and this is kind of how discipline worked at our house too. So they come in, and this is a real insight in how the Romans thought. They got thousands of people trying to kill that guy, and so what's the solution to the problem? Obviously, arrest that guy, you know, because he, I don't know if he's the problem. I don't know if it's just. All I know is if I get that guy out of here, everything goes back to peace. And that's all the Romans cared about. They just wanted things to be peaceful. So they arrest Paul. They put chain him up. When I was a kid, and we had trouble, four kids in our family. So whenever we were having a fight or whatever, my dad would come in, and immediately we would all turn into lawyer mode, you know, and begin taking depositions. Now, admit, you were doing this? No, come on, really, you started this? Oh, no, he started this, he did this first. Well, yes, but it's not my fault because I was provoked. That would go on for five seconds. And then my dad would dispense Roman justice, and that was, everybody is being punished, go to your rooms. And we were like, that's not fair. He's like, who said it was fair? You know, work it out. And so it didn't take very long to realize that whether you started it or whether you didn't start it, you were going to get punished. So we decided maybe diplomacy, you know, is a good, good thing to do. Well, that's kind of the way things were with the Romans, is they just wanted to take care of the troublemaker. So Paul's uh, arrested by the Roman tribune, and they literally have to haul him out of there on their shoulders to take him up to the steps back into the Antonia fortress. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, you can see him going up there and hear the people and they're starting to take him up the stairs. As they're starting to take him in, he asked the tribune, 
may I say something to you? And the tribune is shocked. You have to get the idea here because there's a lot of languages going on. All those Jews are yelling in Aramaic. Think Hebrew, but it's the version of Hebrew, basically, that they spoke at that time. They're all yelling in Aramaic. The tribune's language is Latin. He's, he's Rome. He may not be a Roman guy, but he clearly, he's, you'll find out he's a Roman citizen. He speaks Latin. Everybody spoke some Greek. It was just the, the language, the general language. And so he figures Paul, he's one of these Jewish guys, as he goes up, he speaks to him in very cultured Greek. Like, whoa. And what the tribune says, do you speak Greek? In other words, you're obviously a little more educated because you sound like you speak it quite well. He said, aren't you that Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? And Paul said, no, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Tarsus was probably a city of maybe half a million people. I mean, it's a big city in southern Turkey. And so it was well-known city. He said, no, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. No ordinary thing. Please let me speak to the people. Well, this is interesting in a couple respects. One, the Tribune immediately realizes that Paul is a pretty educated guy. But you also get this interesting idea of who he thought he was. He said, aren't you that Egyptian that led a revolt? One thing you need to know about this time period, this is about 57 AD. There's going to be a massive revolt in 66 AD. So just nine years after this, the whole of uh, Israel is going to rebel against the Romans. They're going to succeed for a little bit, and then they're going to get crushed in 70 AD. And this whole temple, everything gets destroyed. Jerusalem gets destroyed. Over a million Jews are killed in the siege. And so they're, but they're going to revolt in about nine years. And right now, the procurator, the Roman governor, not Pontius Pilate anymore, he got recalled back to Rome and, according to tradition, to tradition commits suicide. The guy who's here now is Felix. And you'll meet him in person next lesson. But Felix was not popular. Rome was not popular. And in the 50s AD, there was a huge huge anti-Roman sentiment. And so there were all kinds of rebellions going on. And one of them that's recorded outside the Bible is this one. And in fact, I'll take you to Josephus again, our first century historian, and here's what he says. There was an Egyptian false prophet that did the Jews a lot of mischief because he was a cheat and he pretended to be a prophet and he got together 30,000 men. Luke says 4,000. Luke's undoubtedly right. Josephus is a notorious exaggerator. Uh, he's, he's as reliable as any ancient historian. He's probably as reliable as any modern historian, too. But basically, he, he tended to exaggerate. He said 30,000 people were deluded. He led them into the wilderness. Then he led them to the Mount of Olives. That's where you're just looking right across the Kidron Valley at, the, at Jerusalem. And he was ready to break into Jerusalem by force if he could conquer the Roman garrison and the people. What he told the people at that time was, he, he convinced them that he was a prophet from God, that they were gonna overthrow the Romans. I mean, this is happening over and over, but this one that, that he mentions is recorded. Josephus says this happened in 54 AD. So that's just a couple of years before what's happening in our story right now. What he told them was, he got them on the Mount of Olives, and he's tapping into some Old Testament prophetic imagery he says, I'm going to shout and the walls are going to fall down. Sound like something you've heard before? Jericho? 
And he says, I'm going to shout and the walls are going to fall down and we're going to rush in and we're going to destroy the Romans and the new day is going to dawn. And 4,000 people believed him. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Felix, the governor, sent those troops out against them, well-armed troops, killed 400 of them, took 200 of them prisoner, the rest of them fled, and the Egyptian was not caught. He also fled. So this tribune thinks... This is that Egyptian guy that we just ran off. He's come back, and now the people are mad at him, and they're trying to kill him. That's what he thought was happening. Again, interesting thing, though, is the, the historical events in Acts are recorded outside the Bible. So he thinks that this is that Egyptian, that false prophet, coming back, and the people are just mad at him. Also in here is another interesting word that the NIV really obscures, he uh, basically got together these 30,000 men and he got together what are called in the text assassins. Some of the other uh, translations translated assassins. There were a group of people at this time, a sect of the Jews. You, you remember the zealots? Jesus had a zealot as one of his 12 disciples. Now the zealots in this time period they were definitely all about, let's all get ourselves armed and let's go fight Rome. We're not paying them taxes. We're not going to submit to them. We're going to start a big rebellion. Well, inside the zealots are a group of people who are even more committed than that. They were called the dagger men. There's a word called uh, sica. They were called sicari because that means a dagger. It was a short curved dagger. And then what they would do is they would hide it inside their cloak and they would kill Romans. They were terrorists. They would kill Roman soldiers. They'd knife them and, or pro-Roman Jewish sympathizers. They'd kill Jews who they thought were collaborating with the Romans. So they were kind of the terrorists at the time. They would mingle in a crowd, like at a festival, come up behind somebody and stab them in the crowd and be gone before anybody could identify them or suspect them. So the Jews feared them and they feared collaborating with the Romans and they were trying to instigate uh, this, this uh, uprising. And they were successful in 66 AD and nine years later in doing that. So that's who he's talking about. Well, Paul says, you know, no, I'm not that guy. I'm not part of that. And so he received the commander's permission. He stood on the steps and he motioned to the crowd. They all became silent. They realized this guy's going to say something. He's going to give a speech. And he said to them in Aramaic. So now he switched from Greek to this guy to speaking in Aramaic, which is basically Hebrew. He, so he's speaking in their language. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very silent. He said, okay, this is a Jew. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was raised in Jerusalem in this city. I was taught under Gamaliel and thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and just as zealous for God as any of you are here today. In other words, he says, you guys think you're enthusiastic? I was more enthusiastic than you. You think you're well-educated? I was raised under the premier rabbi of the time. It's like coming today and said, look, I had one-on-one -on -one tutoring sessions at Harvard. You know, he said, I know what we're talking about here. He said, I was zealous. He said, actually... I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. I used to arrest the men and the women and throw them into prison. You can imagine there are people there going, yeah, that's that Saul of Tarsus guy. 
Remember that about 20 years ago? He's that young firebrand that was out persecuting the Christians. But now look at him. He's turned traitor. But he said, yeah, that, that's that guy. He said, I persecuted them. He said, and the high priest and all the council can testify that that's what I did. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, and I went there to bring these people back. So he's saying, look, I'm more zealous than you can imagine. Then he goes on. I'm going to leave out the next part. And I'd like for you to read it. And he just gives his testimony. He said, I was on the road to Damascus, and a bright light came, and I heard this voice saying, Saul, Saul. I hear you have a problem with me. I guess it's a loose translation. Saul, I hear you have a problem with me. He said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. And Paul goes, uh-oh. And so then they have a conversation. He has the conversion. He goes into Damascus, and he's blind. And he says, guys, I just got to tell you, this Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Well, they're all just listening in rapt attention. So he goes on to continue, and he said, now listen. And then when I came back to Jerusalem, I was praying at the temple, and I fell into a trance, and the Lord said to me, this is the only time this is recorded. He said, you need to leave Jerusalem, Paul, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And, and he said, but I told the Lord. I said, Lord, these men know that I used to persecute the Christians. I imprisoned them. I beat those who believed in you. And when Stephen was killed, I was there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said, surely they're going to believe me because, come on, I'm the least likely convert you can imagine. Then the Lord said to me, no, go. I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. Oh, we just tripped the big trigger. Remember the, all that prejudice we were talking about? Listen, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. You get the impression they're, they're not so upset about this whole Jesus rising from the dead thing, but it's like, whoa, you start going to the Gentiles, now you've really tripped our trigger. And as soon as he said this, they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. He's really stepped on their toes by saying, what he's really saying to them is that God is going to give salvation to the Gentiles, not just you. Well, what's that really saying? You're saying to yourself there, as Americans, you're like, hey, that sounds fair enough. We don't mind if somebody participates in the good things that we have. That's not the way they thought about it. They thought we're special to God, and by saying that he was opening the door to the Gentiles means that we've done something wrong. He's convicting them of having been unfaithful to God. And they're like, I do not want to hear this. It's sort of like you and me or our culture today when we convict people of sin and say, you know, I just got to tell you, this is not the way God calls us to live. What's our first reaction? Thank you so much for pointing that out to me. Can you pick up your newspapers today and when Christians speak to our culture and say, this is not God honoring to do these things. And usually the culture says, thank you Christians so much for telling us this. No, anger, even violence. In other words, their reaction is pretty typical when we get called out by saying God is not okay with the way you're doing things. And that's what you see happening here is they, he's called them out and so they're reacting. Well. So they're really angry at this point. And so they start doing Middle Eastern kind of things. So they're shouting, they're throwing off their cloaks, they're flinging dust into the air. Nobody knows what the dust in the air is. They're just so mad they gotta throw something. All right, so we're throwing dust in the air. The commander goes, this was a mistake. I don't know what he was saying. I don't know if, he, I don't know if the commander, the Tribune speaks Aramaic or not. All he knows is he's a pretty cultured guy, but whatever he's saying is riling everybody up. 
right? He said, so he ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. And then he does another Roman thing. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. This is so Roman. They said, okay, I don't know who's right or wrong, but he seems to be the problem. Why don't we just flog him to get the truth about why are they yelling at you? You know, just cut through this thing. What are they mad at you about? And they're going to scourge him. The word there is to scourge him. This was a really common Roman technique. They would they'd take a whip. This is what happened with Jesus. They'd take a, a handle, and they'd take these leather straps. It was much worse than being beaten with rods, which has happened to him before too. And they would put, uh, they would put sharp rocks and all embedded in the leather so that when you were hit, it was very damaging, very painful. A lot of times people died from being scourged, just from being whipped. But they did this routinely. You read in the church fathers later that particularly with slaves, but even with common people, when they'd bring you in to question you for trial, if you were a Roman citizen, you could go, you know, hand on the Bible, just joking about that, hand on the Bible, swear an oath, I'll tell the truth. If you're not a Roman citizen, your testimony is only valid if it was taken under torture because they figure you're going to lie. And so he's... Typical Roman thing, flog him until we are sure we got the truth, turn him loose, maybe he lives, maybe he doesn't live. So they're stretching him out, getting ready to beat him, and Paul says to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Do you see here the brilliance of God choosing Paul? I mean, he's really, you've seen in Acts, he's really educated. He's a Jew's Jew in a sense. I mean, he's very devout Jew. He's been persecuting Christians, so a lot of Jews are like, hey, if this guy, if this happened to this guy, it's not like he was a sympathizer. And he's a Roman citizen. I mean, God was so brilliant in choosing Paul for this task. He says, are you allowed to do this? And the centurion, when he heard this, he went to the tribune and reported it. What are you going to do? This man's a Roman citizen. Commander said, get out of the way. Goes to Paul, he says, tell me the truth. Are you a Roman citizen? That's a big deal. Impersonating a Roman citizen is punishable usually by death. So you can't just say you're a citizen. They can check to see. There are registries. It might take a while, but you're going to hold you. We're going to find out because if you're not a Roman citizen and you say you are, we're going to kill you. And so he says, are you indeed a Roman citizen? Paul said, I am. The commander said, I had to pay a lot of money to become a citizen. Well, you don't know yet, but you will in next week's lesson. This guy's name, this tribune's name is uh, Claudius Lysias. When you became a Roman citizen, you had to have a patron Kind of like, just kind of like the mafia system a little bit. I mean, that's kind of where it came from, is you had a patron. And if you became a Roman, you got a Roman name. And there were two parts to your name, or typically the way they would say it. Paul, part of his name was, was uh, Paulus, which is just a Latin word. We don't know what the first part was. But the first part was usually whoever your patron was, you know, whoever you then became affiliated with. In the reign of the emperor Claudius... He made money by selling Roman citizenships uh, for a high price. That typically didn't happen. He stopped being emperor in 54. This is 57. This guy's name is Claudius Lysias. He undoubtedly bought his citizenship a few years earlier under Claudius's reign. He said, I had to pay a lot of money to become a citizen. And Paul said, I was born a citizen. So those who were about to question him withdrew immediately, and the commander himself was kind of alarmed when he realized that he'd put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So 
this Roman citizenship is starting, you start to see God's plan, his long-range plan. It's the only thing that really keeps Paul alive at this point. And so Paul, he unchains him, and then he decides, I want to find out what's going on. I mean, why are these guys trying to kill a Roman citizen? So the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him, ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin, so this is the 70 Jewish elders, to come to see Paul. Then he brought Paul in, stood him down in the middle of them, and Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near to punch him in the mouth. Not a good start, again, right? Well, I'm going to talk to you about this for a second, but let me pause and see if we have any questions. I've gone through quite a bit. This is happening in a really short period of time, but Luke is intent on narrating what happened, and you can really see the hand of God working in this. Question? Yeah, this kind of goes, um, it's a broad question, but in this particular time period, we've talked about several countries, Turkey, Greece, Mm -hmm. Italy, um, Spain, those are the countries to us today, Israel. Were they Jewish or Arab, or were they what we would consider Western European? In this time, what were the people groups? Yes, good question. In what we would now call Israel, which would be the Roman province of Palestina, Palestine, they're the first ones to call it that, by the way, in the Roman era, that Roman province was largely ethnically Jewish people at this time. It's not going to be for very long, because in 70 AD they're going to Uh, kick a bunch of Jews out, but right now it's mainly Jewish. When you go to Greece, mainly Greeks. I mean, they were different tribes. There were different little areas in Greece. There was Macedonia, which there still is, I guess, but they're Macedonians in the north, and you have all these different Greek racial groups, but they're all Greek people in Greece. Up in Turkey, you have a, a variety. Now, they're mixed. I mean, there are people there that live there that aren't Greeks, but largely it's a Greek place. Up in Turkey, You'll tend to see a lot of Persian people. Think Iranian. I mean, that's really not exactly accurate, but over into that area and in the different areas, you'll see different tribal groups. But think Turks, Turkish people, or at least the the ancestors of Turkish people. So ethnically, they're ethnically very different. The only thing that binds them together is they're all under Roman rule. And most of the times when we use the names, we use the Roman names that they've given to those provinces. But these are ethnically the ancestors of the people that live there today. I mean, I, I realize 2,000 years, a lot of intermingling and intermarrying can happen, but they're Greeks, Turks, Jewish people. We go back and talk about the Nazarite vow for just a minute. Uh-huh. What is the deal with hair? We're either <laughs> growing it long and not cutting it, we're shaving our heads, we're growing sideburns. Yeah, hair, I don't know that I can tell you the exact significance of all the hair uh, issues there, but it's visible signs. There's a lot in the law of Moses that are outwardly visible signs that honestly nobody knows why. And the rabbis thought, and this is really, I think this is true, a lot of times God gave laws that people didn't know why because you know what? You just need to obey. I mean, if you only obey the laws you understand, which, and you only obey the laws you agree with, which, by the way, on the Hefner Turnpike is the norm. I think people only obey the laws they agree with there. But seriously, is that trust? That's not trust. It's like, okay, I agree with you. That's a good law, so I'll follow it. 
The rabbi said, you know, sometimes God made up laws that we don't know why, and I, they thought he made them up just to find out. Will you trust me if you don't understand why? So I think that a lot of those laws, they didn't have a good explanation of many of those things. They were simply visible signs of obedience, even if you didn't understand why. So there may be more significance to that, but I have not read, I don't see anything in the scripture that gives you more than that. But that's what the rabbis thought. An outward sign of obedience, even if you don't know why you're doing that. So Paul agreed to take the vow, even though he was not telling Christians that they had to be Jewish, and he wasn't telling Jews that they didn't have to follow Moses. So was it honest of him to take the Nazarite vow? Yeah, and that's the good, interesting question. What he was doing, he was really subversive. He was definitely telling Jews that following the law of Moses did not make you okay with God. But he was not actively telling them, and by the way, you should quit doing it. He wasn't saying that. His point was, I just want you to understand that whether you eat meat or you don't eat meat, you eat pork or you don't eat pork, you know, you grow your hair or you don't grow your hair, he said, that is not what makes you right with God. So he's definitely teaching that. And you can see how it's, not, it's a pretty short punt to get to, hey, this guy's upsetting the law of Moses here. He wasn't technically, but he was teaching it's not necessary, but he was not advocating, oh, by the way, don't circumcise. He wasn't saying that. He just was telling him it, it didn't matter. So in that sense, Paul was doing it knowing this doesn't make me holier. The only reason I'm doing this is I'll just show them that I'm, when I come to speak the truth to you, it's not because I'm too lazy to follow the law. Does that make sense? He's trying to say, look, take this, take this law thing off the table. I'm not eating pork. I'm following the rules. Are we good there? Okay, now I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. And my motives are pure. In other words, I'm not telling you this because I just don't want to live that lifestyle. In fact, I'll live the lifestyle as well as you do, and I'll just tell you, it doesn't make you close to God. So I think in this case, he's very much trying to advance the gospel. But there are going to be times when you're asked to do things that you, you cannot do, and you'll see Paul draw the line on some of those things. But that's a good question. It was acceptable but not required. It was acceptable for him to do that, but not required. The church had written back in Acts 15 to Gentiles saying, look, you do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to start following the rules. That is not true. We think that you're saved by grace through faith. But they didn't write a letter to the Jews saying, oh, by the way, you guys quit doing this. So they were like, if, if the Jews quit doing it, they could. And Paul would have said, that doesn't make you righteous, trusting and following Jesus Christ is what you need to do, but he wasn't advocating that. And most of them continued to live by custom, the way they were accustomed to do. So it isn't the same as making a cultural accommodation that violates God's ordinances. Absolutely not. In other words, if they had said to Paul, uh, when this about, uh, the example I used earlier, okay, you need to pray to the emperor, he'd go, nope, don't care who you are, don't care if that means you're not gonna follow Christ, I'm not doing it. So there were places. He wouldn't violate moral codes. In other words, if he's trying to reach the Gentiles and they said, hey, you want to preach to us about Jesus? Why don't you come to the orgy at the temple, you know, to Apollo this week? Nah, not doing that. So there are certainly lines. How unique was Paul's cross-cultural activity? Did other people move inside the Jews and the Gentiles um, the way he did? Yeah, what Paul was doing was unusual. There were itinerant teachers 
but nothing like what you see in all these preachers, Timothy and Trophimus and all these guys he's sending out. It's a little unusual. You did see people moving. They were not as mobile a society as we are, but when they moved, they tend to stay together. When the Jews in Ephesus, they had a Jewish community in Ephesus. Paul in there talked, they'll talk to anybody and everybody, you know, just going out. That was unusual. Crossing those ethnic boundaries and the message of the cross is for everybody. That's unusual. The Greeks thought, hey, we believe in Apollo and he likes the Greeks, you Jews. I don't care if you believe in Apollo or not, you're Jews anyway. You know, they would kind of, would not mix very much. The gospel's unique and it's like, this is, we'll talk to everybody about Jesus Christ. That was very unusual. Um, tell us what the Sanhedrin is, would you please? The Sanhedrin is the ruling council of the Jews. The Romans had Roman law, but they don't want to run the law courts. They just want the tax money. I mean, they just want to rule the place. We do not want to get involved in your petty messes. And so the civil courts were typically run by the people in that country. You're going to see that there's a Jewish king. You're going to meet him next week. His name is Herod Agrippa II. Very interesting bird. Uh, tell you a little bit about his love life next week. But he's the king of the Jews, like King Herod. He's basically overseeing all the municipal courts and all that sort of thing because the Romans don't want to do it. The Sanhedrin is the religious courts. And so you would go there and they would rule on religious matters. And the Romans are like, fine, you just deal with all your religious stuff. We don't care about it. Just don't kill anybody because we are the only ones that can do capital punishment. But otherwise, flog people, do whatever your little laws say. So the Sanhedrin was the supreme group of 70 elders who were uh, rulers of the Jews. Was Luke with Paul the entire time? He appears to not have been with Paul the entire time. You'll see him slip into first person and third person. And I pointed it out when he first joined, but I haven't been pointing it out. But when he says we, he's with Paul. When he says they, he's, because we know that Paul left him in certain places to do things, and he, but he kept his history going. And so he's with him sometimes and not other times. Well, let's see how this little speech goes because it didn't start very well. He says, look, I'm doing what I think God told me to do. The high priest says, hit him in the mouth. Paul says, boy, you really shouldn't do that kind of stuff. But then it starts to get kind of rambunctious. And then Paul, I've skipped forward, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees. These are two sects of the Jews. We talked about them early. And he realizes this isn't going well, but there's Sadducees and Pharisees here. He says, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. You know why I'm on trial today? Because I hope in the resurrection of the dead. Oh, my goodness. When he said this, then a dispute broke out amongst them because the Pharisees and the Sadducees start arguing with each other. And Paul's just like, okay, I'm off the hook. And because the Sadducees say there's no resurrection of the dead, that there's no such thing as angels or spirits. They believed in God. They believed in the law of Moses. They didn't believe in anything else in the Old Testament. They didn't believe there was a resurrection of the dead or spirits. Pharisees believed in all those things. They thought you're going to be resurrected at the end of time. Big, big conflict between them. But the Pharisees believe in all those things. So there was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and began to argue, we don't find anything wrong with this guy at all. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him and the dispute between them became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces in the middle of this thing? So he ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force and take him back to the barracks. This tribune's like, what is it going to take to get this guy 
to have some peace here because every time he says anything, they all start trying to kill each other. And so Paul very cleverly, you know, kind of escapes this situation. So he goes back, and then the next morning, the Jews, so he's in protective, he's not arrested now, he's a Roman citizen, he's not charged with anything, he's in protective custody. They're like, no, Paul, you are not free to go because they're going to kill you, and then I'm going to have to explain why I let a bunch of Jews kill a Roman citizen. You just stay here. So they've got him in the barracks, but the next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have a plan. We've taken an oath not to eat until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin, you go tell the tribune, you need him to bring Paul back to you because you just need to question him a little more and we're going to ambush him and kill him on the way. And they'd have to kill some Roman soldiers too. But they're like, whatever it takes to kill this guy, we have taken an oath. We'll eat no food until we kill him. So send the message, have him bring him, and we'll be waiting to kill him. Well, we're going to let those guys be hungry for a week, and I'll tell you what happens next time. Next week, Paul, does he live? Does he die? What happens to the plot? I'll see you guys next week.